2: I've been asked to discuss something with you on behalf of the White House staff and the American people.
1: So, discuss
2: it. We would all like you to stay on. I mean, these other candidates,
1: they're they're terrible. They are god-awful, aren't they? One of them is a mentally unbalanced, nativist nutcase, and the other one is a saber-rattling opportunist with more baggage than the carousels at LaGuardia. So, just stay. Four more years. That's unconstitutional.
2: Silly. Nobody follows the Constitution anymore.
1: Well, you've got a point there, but I have so many plans. My short game has really been coming together on the vineyard, but I need to play every day. And I was gonna sing on the next Aloe Black album and rap with Common.
2: I know, Mr. President.
1: I was gonna eat a whole bag of cheese doodles instead of this seven almonds nonsense. Yes,
2: sir, we are in total sympathy, but we really feel as though these other candidates might get us all killed or, or blow up the world or or you know, trash
1: our democracy. Let me ask you this. What am I famous for?
2: Being our first robot president, but I never believed that, sir. The correct
1: answer was seeking compromise. Here's what I'm offering. I'll do the first year. Oprah does the second, Tom Hanks does the third, then Elizabeth Warren comes in and demolishes Wall Street in the fourth year. Thank
2: you, Mr. President. Let's listen to this show together, shall we, sir? And now this does not change his plan to write in Alex Trebek, Colin McEnroe.
3: Yeah, I know he's Canadian. Uh, Why do people want to pick my ideas apart? Nobody else's ideas get picked apart anymore. So we are going to spend the first uh, segment of this show talking about, in fact, the campaign, the latest developments with Eric Levitz, associate editor at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. Uh, After that, we will revisit. We're going to bring you back uh, a few months to uh, an interview that we did with Jay Fishman, the uh, Travelers executive uh, who died of ALS. Uh, just a few days ago. Uh, He spoke very frankly and candidly to us about his ALS at the time. Uh, And then at the end, we're going to take one last look at Rio, kind of Rio post-Olympics, ranging from uh, um, a conversation about how the media covered Rio, not the Olympics, but how the the media covered Rio itself and its challenges and and some of its actual mostly unsung, unsung victories. We'll also tell you about a few fairly remarkable ways that Rio will repurpose some of the stuff that it built uh, to uh, to make the Olympics. All right. So that is all to come. But we have to be in as we must, as everyone must, with the presidential campaign that will never end, apparently. So joining us, as I said, is Eric Levitz, associate editor at uh, New York Magazine's Daily Intelli- Intelligencer. Welcome to our show, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I uh, grew up in Glastonbury, so I've been
3: listening to the show for a while. Oh, gosh. So, um, well, I have great uh, fondness for Glastonbury and spend a lot of time there still. So, um... That's, I just maybe what we want to do is like run through a few of these things, uh, a few of the latest developments. Um, Hillary Clinton, who has taken a, a fair amount of criticism, not unreasonably, for not doing press conferences for hundreds of days uh, at a time, uh, submitted to the harsh interrogations of Jimmy Kimmel last night. But one of the things that did come up is this whole, you know, as far as anybody can tell, completely unfounded notion being pushed by Trump and Trump surrogates that she has some kind of concealed medical condition. Right. And so she she humorously denied it. She said back in October, the National Enquirer said I would be dead in six months. So with every breath I take, I feel like it's a vacation. Um, This is which is, you know, somebody wrote her a good joke uh, to tell about this. I mean, this there it's sort of odd because there are some real problems that Hillary Clinton has right now. And we'll we'll get into them. It's sort of weird that the Trump campaign would be pushing this. That seems to be based on nothing. I mean, is there any there there? No, it, it, it's kind of
0: befuddling. I mean, I think this meme sort of has its origins in when, uh, I believe, Clinton had a, a minor concussion years ago, when she, she, mm-hmm. she delayed her appearance before, I think, some sort of Benghazi committee because of a, a head injury. Um, but she's obviously been in, in pretty fine health for uh, the 14 months or whatever of this campaign, um, flying all around the country and seems pretty active and and vital uh, as far as, uh, you know, you can be at at her age. Um, So, yeah, the fact that with so much, uh, as you alluded to in that skit just now, you know, Clinton has plenty of baggage. She's been in American political life for three decades and has, you know, made some questionable decisions in the course of that time. And there's a lot to dig into as far as, you know, the whatever, the Goldman Sachs speeches, the whole access that foundation donors had to the State Department. Plenty of things that have more sort of meat on the bones than uh, a conspiracy theory that she's actually about to die, which um, even if it were true, it's not clear to me what the, the upshot of, of that is. I mean, she has a vice president uh, who's running with her, who is, uh, has experience in government and seems eminently more qualified than Donald Trump to take the position. So it's really not, not clear to me what even even if she were Seriously
3: ill. You know, what, what that would have to do with uh, the choice before the American people? Yes, and so uh, I, I first of all agree, but I think also, you know, Donald Trump has kind of a fondness for for conspiracy theories and for theories that can neither be proved nor disproved, um, or, or at least seem uh, not amenable to any kind of disproof. And I mean, it's a little bit a little bit connected to his uh, old Obama birtherism. Um, he likes stories like that. That. You know, things that people know but really can't be brought out into the light, and so there's no way to really completely examine them. You know, He'd almost rather have that conversation than the kind of painstaking, fly-specking conversation that the rest of the country or the, the mainstream press and, and probably the Republican establishment is willing to have uh, about the emails uh, and the Clinton Foundation. And those are two stories that are beginning to feed on each other a, a little bit, too. The more the emails come out, the more they raise questions about the relationship between the State Department and the foundation, and, and Eric, it does seem with the latest disclosure, the discovery of almost fifteen thousand more emails. This is kind of um, uh, uh, a thing that's going to go drip, 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 drip right up to election day.
0: Yeah, it, it does. It does seem like that. Um, you know, I, I guess with the more the emails come out, at least up to this point, anyway. Uh, They they seem to document a level of corruption that, you know, if this is a problem or a crime, then you would have to jail every member of the House of Representatives as far as right now what we're seeing in the emails is that people who donated to the Clinton Foundation seem to have an easier time getting their emails to the State Department with little requests uh, responded to than, say, other wealthy people who had requests of the State Department, Um, mostly Reading through them, there's just a lot of uh, requests being sent to Clinton named Huma Abedin, some of them very odd, one of them from Bono, who donated to the Clinton Global Initiative and wanted to somehow incorporate the International Space Station into U-2's tour. Um, Lots of odd requests that seem to have not actually been honored. Uh, The main one that came out yesterday that that seemed to show something, the most damning thing that came out yesterday was that the, the crown prince of Bahrain was trying to arrange a meeting with Hillary Clinton through the State Department, and Clinton was kind of ambivalent about doing it that week, because she was sort of tired, and uh, then Doug Band, the head of the Clinton Foundation, sent an email to Aberdeen saying, hey, this is like one of our good friends, Uh, can you maybe get this meeting to happen? And it appears that after that nudging, the meeting went through. So it seems like potentially uh, the worst thing that came out yesterday is that uh, the fact that The Crown Prince of Bahrain was a Clinton Foundation donor, expedited his uh, ability to secure a meeting with Hillary Clinton.
3: You know, one of the only things that uh, Joe Lieberman ever said that I either a believed in or b agreed with uh, over the last, uh, say, I don't know how many years, twenty years, uh, I think it was at the time uh, of uh, that kind of allegor fundraising scandal. Joe Lieberman said uh, there are two things which are shocking: those things which are done illegally, and then also shocking are those things which are actually legal. Uh, and I think what we're going to probably see here with this story, and to me, it's a three-pointed geometric figure. It's sort of what go- what went on over at State, what went on over at the Clinton Foundation and probably also to a certain degree what kinds of fees Bill Clinton was able to collect from various people. I mean, uh, yeah. we we do know that, you know, their income went down to 10.7 million from 28 point something million the year before. Um, this, this is, there is a coziness to all this, right? That there's sort of a, a sense that, you know, there's the way government operates, there's the way the foundation operates. And then Bill Clinton uh, has been making a hell of a lot of money. And and I don't know how Strong a line you can draw between any of those dots, but and I sound kind of Trumpian when I say, but it just there's something about it that smells a little fishy.
0: Yeah, I, I saw another uh, sort of pundit liken the Clinton Foundation to a um, classical like political machine, um, as far as you know, it's a way for <laughs> the Clintons essentially to you know monetize their power and access um, and for, you know, grubby special interests to purchase that access and as a side product, you know, some good charitable work is actually done uh, in the same way that a sort of a classic political machine ultimately to sustain itself had to actually provide valuable services to people while, um, you know, creating a vehicle for uh, cronyist appointments and uh, political favors. so, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that the, the the trouble as far as, you know, Trump taking advantage of it is that if your main issue as a voter is uh, an allergy to conflicts of interest in who you elect, there's, there's just really no way to prefer Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton for all the, the baggage that Clinton has. Uh, Trump has so many conflicts of interest baked into his corporation. Uh, he has holdings across the globe, all of them have his name on them, so there's no real way to, to separate him from them. He owns, uh, I guess, just came out this weekend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to the the State Bank of China, um, in addition to rumored ties to a bunch of Russian oligarchs. Anyway, there's there's a lot, and he actually, unlike, well, whereas Clinton and the Clinton Foundation is moving towards, uh, you know, not accepting foreign donations and shrinking the Foundation's role, Trump is actually not really the extent of his promise to disassociate himself from his business interests has been that he will have his kids uh, take more responsibility for the company, um, which is is a pretty minor concession. And then there were reports this past week that he had actually floated to NBC the possibility of shooting a season of The Apprentice while he's in the White House. (laughs) Um,
3: I missed that one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you know, at times he actually seems to promise to, to use His public power for personal gain. And in a certain Hannity interview, he talked about when he was president, you know, the PGA would never get away with relocating one of its tournaments from his golf course in Florida. So, anyway, there's just no way that you can really prefer. Donald Trump as the, you know, the clean candidate is the the problem for him.
3: Right, and and certainly over the weekend, uh, the piece that you're talking about in the New York Times, where they hired a company I think called Red Vision to try to figure out what his debt structure really is, and I think they're one of the ones who uncovered this huge debt to the Bank of China. Um, But I mean, basically. And and one thing they said in that article is part of the problem is that Donald Trump is not particularly transparent about stuff and won't release his tax returns. But the other problem is his business is so baroque and Rococo and so, you know, complicated, so much more complicated and and interlaced in the ways that you are suggesting, Eric, than a typical presidential candidates, that the questionnaires that they have to answer aren't even really sufficient to produce the truth, even if the candidate were willing to disgorge the truth, that, that, you know, he's... He does have these these sprawling amounts of uh, of investments and ties and loans, um, and the other His other problem with this is that if you wanted to make the Clintons' conflicts of interest into an issue, you would have had to adopt a different rhetorical stance than the one he previously has, where he basically talked about why he gave money to, the, to previous Clinton campaigns because he believes in that system of access. You know, like, I, I gave a donation and I got access. That's the way it works. I know the way it works. It's fine with me. I get it. So I, to have said those things and then to be a stickler for... For, for a clean campaigning is probably going to be a, a little bit of a reach for him. I wanted to talk about another thing you've covered, which is um, the confusion, if that's the right word, uh, around Donald Trump's. Uh, position on immigration we certainly know how he campaigned on immigration part of his campaign was a deportation force basically that there would be this group from ice we assume running around gathering up 11 million people uh, who are here uh, illegally uh, and getting them on the other side of the wall that he's going to build in in recent days it, it seems as though he's doing something that's either a walk back or very close to a walk back what can you tell us about that
0: yeah. So over the weekend, he met with a newly formed Hispanic Advisory Council, and reports out of that meeting from Univision and Buzzfeed um, suggested that Trump, if he didn't say the words that he was for a pathway to legalization, he at least said uh, you know that he was looking for a humane and efficient way to deal with the undocumented population, and talked about how that's you know the the hardest part of this immigration issue is the law-abiding people who are already here, and suggested that he was open to their suggestions for how to resolve that problem. And and a lot of people in the room were people whose suggestion is, you know, give them legal status. Uh, So that came out and there was a a big, you know, backlash among Trump's supporters on the right uh, because, you know, a large part of Trump's appeal has been, I think, in the primary was his, his affect, his you know, showmanship, uh, his ability to perform a certain kind of um, masculine dominance on the debate stage and, and to you know, talk politically incorrect and, and like a whatever, um, to speak kind of you know, with a certain kind of authenticity, the kind of authenticity that you have when you don't seem to care about the implications of what you're saying. But, uh, but to the extent that there was a policy appeal, it was that he was to the right of the entire field on immigration, his uh, willingness to not be, you know, constrained by any sense of, you know, mercy or the logistical details of what he was proposing allowed him to, you know, call for a deportation force to get rid of every single person who's here illegally, to build a, you know, 10-foot wall that Mexico would somehow pay for, whatever. So he really staked out that ground. And now, uh, just last night on on Bill O'Reilly's show, he actually said, the words uh you know what people don't know is that obama got tremendous numbers of people out of the country <laughs> um bush the same thing uh this is like the literal antithesis of what he said during the primary his, his quote there is you know people don't appreciate how much establishment politicians have done to uh solve this immigration problem we have and i really want to follow in their footsteps uh, there could not be a more antithetical message than the one that he's been campaigning on um
3: so this is this isn't just a pivot. This is a one hundred and eighty degree pivot in a lot of ways. And among the people who are confused are because I think it it this, they're doing this on the fly pretty clearly. This isn't something where they you know they had some kind of master plan or even a couple of weeks to work it out. It seems to be something maybe that's happening at least partly as a result of the the, the campaign shakeup and the new people. But the new people don't know what to say. Kellyanne Conway, his new co. Campaign manager was on CNN. Uh, was asked about it, and she said uh, he, She was asked point blank, "Does his plan now include mass deportation?" Uh, and she said that's to be determined. Jeff Sessions, who's been you know a major surrogate for Trump, uh, particularly on this issue of immigration, also seemed unable in a series of interviews to explain exactly what it is that Trump is talking about right now. And and I think for. Hardcore conservatives, there's a problem in the sense that he seems to be walking away from this. It's sort of been his his biggest applause line at his rallies. But it's also infuriating more traditional establishment Republicans, Eric, because he's basically now adopting, if not Obama's position on immigration, although it seems kind of close to that, certainly the, the positions that Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz articulated during the primary campaign. And Trump spat on those positions as being too weak on immigration
0: yeah I mean it it it's should be fairly clear at this point that Trump does not have beliefs in the way that we normally associate politicians or whatever to the extent that we still believe that politicians believe in things. Trump does not um to your point uh, yeah that, that the campaign not being prepared for this, they did have you know a uh, speech scheduled for Thursday night where he was going to unveil in Colorado which has a large Hispanic population, uh, which is part of why Trump is losing Colorado very badly, that he was going to give a big immigration speech in Colorado and uh, clarify what his position is going forward. And on Monday, he canceled that speech uh, very abruptly after sort of hyping it quite a bit. So it seems like the campaign had a plan for how it was going to uh, put forward its immigration plan, and then as soon as it got some backlash, it seems to suddenly have to recalibrate Um But yeah, to your point, I mean, Trump's position right now, uh, and and one thing I I wrote about this morning was that, you know, that the traditional uh, comprehensive immigration reform deal, the bipartisan deal, uh, hinges on this trade where Democrats get a pathway to legalization, uh, if not to citizenship for the undocumented, and Republicans get billions and billions of dollars to spend on security theater at the southern border. So the the Gang of Eight bill um, established a pathway to legalization, and then it also... Uh, gave billions of dollars for building hundreds of miles of border fence and security surveillance towers and uh, an extended uh, you know group of troops sort of to to monitor the border. anyways, that's the the deal. Um, and the problem in the past has been that it turns out that Republican voters, the ones who lobby their congress people anyway, care way more about keeping the undocumented uh, in either you know a state of uh, quiet terror or deporting them. Than they do about uh, all that, you know, security stuff. So, right now, Trump, you know, if Trump can convince his supporters that they care more about the wall than they do about deporting people, that would actually be uh, an immense help to the the cause of comprehensive immigration reform. Ironically, because Democrats, uh, Democrats have already supported, you know, extending a border fence. I think that they can rebrand that fence as a wall, and they'll be comfortable signing that if they can get uh, something for the undocumented uh, as far as the path to legalization.
3: Yeah, I mean, so you know, they said only Nixon could go to China. Uh, Maybe only Donald Trump can actually put the finishing touches on comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, It would be hard to accuse him anyway of having been so soft on this. And and in a way, I mean, that's you could sort of say the same thing about George W. Bush, whose whose bona fides as a Republican conservative, were never in doubt, but, you know, seemed to lean much, Didn't well, seem to me, he leaned much more in this direction. And it it, it seemed as though Donald Trump was maybe going to be the last guy to turn out the lights uh, on, on ideas like mass deportation. And now, I guess he's going to hand the keys to Jeff Sessions, right? I mean, there won't be too many people left on this outpost. I mean, who knows
0: where he'll end up by the end of this week, if he'll, you know, <laughs> he could have a double the size of his deportation force, but uh, it does seem like, um, you know, the Washington Post pointed out that actually despite his rhetoric in interviews. I mean, look, during an interview, you know, the the guy, the candidate will say whatever pops into his head at any given moment, but when Trump actually or his advisors sat down to write his official immigration plan that's on his website back last August, a year ago, uh, that plan actually didn't include anything on mass deportation. It was about the wall. It was about Mexico paying for the wall. It was about deporting criminals, but it it said nothing about, you know, getting 11 million people out of the country. That was never in his written plan. Um, So it's possible that the seeds of this flip-flop, I guess, may have been planted a long time ago.
3: Yeah, that doesn't really seem to be the way things work, but but maybe, maybe just this one yeah. time they had a, a big plan. All right, Eric Levitz, associate editor at New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. Thanks for doing this today. If you're ever back in town, we'll have a cup of coffee at Soga, as the South Glastonbury's bohemian. <laughs> colorful section now calls itself. When we come back, we're going to take you kind of down memory lane, kind of a sad memory lane, a very sad memory lane. Uh, Jay Fishman, uh, an executive at The Travelers and a very well-known community leader, uh, died over the weekend of ALS, died on Friday of ALS. Uh, You'll listen to our conversation with him.
4: To bring
0: some
3: Right at the end of March, uh, we did a show about uh, ALS. Um, As most of you know, I'm very close to my pastor uh, who is struggling with ALS. Uh, Jay Fishman was at the same time the former chairman and CEO of Travelers. Um, We actually did the show partly because of a movie about an artist named James Imber. And um, we didn't think that Jay Fishman would be able to join us for this show. And then he surprised us by being willing to. Uh, He died this past Friday, August 19th. Uh, We thought we would uh, re-share with you our conversation uh, in late March with Jay Fishman. Jay Fishman is current chairman of the board and former CEO for Travelers. He, too, has an ALS diagnosis. Welcome to the conversation, Jay Fishman.
5: Well, thank you, Colin. It's nice to be here with you today.
3: So um, maybe you could just quickly tell us. uh, I mean, every single ALS story is a slightly different story. Um, How did you discover that you have this disease?
5: Um, Well, I, I was experiencing bad back symptoms and was doing all the things that one should do when you uh, have a bad back. I was seeing uh, orthopedic physicians and uh, dutifully going to physical therapy, exercising. Uh, And and in fact, I do have a problematic back which made the diagnosis even more complicated because problems do evidence themselves in the MRI. Um, But thankfully I was with physicians who were not so quick to operate. They kept indicating that they certainly saw the challenges in my back. Um, but that just wasn't accounting for uh, all of my symptoms. I was fortunate in that regard. My The version that I have is, is sometimes referred to as uh, axial or, or core, meaning that the initial muscles <clears throat> that were impacted, actually my kind of abdominal core muscles, uh, also my diaphragm. <clears throat> and so my, my breathing, breathing challenges uh, for me have been leading the way. So... Uh, it really initially manifested itself as a, a week back, an inability to uh, stand up straight for periods of time, to um, it, 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 my, my body kept wanting to lean to the right uh, inexplicably, couldn't couldn't understand it. And um, finally, after after repeated visits to physicians, so someone one of them suggested I visit a neurologist, and that was at the beginning of the of the process of being diagnosed. Which, which wasn't even that easy even then.
3: Well, obviously, getting the diagnosis sooner isn't going to necessarily help you treat the disease or anything like that. But it does, the sooner you know, the sooner you know what you need, right? You, the sooner you can... You know, Jay, Jay Fishman, oh, I, would, yeah, yeah. I would
5: take a, a little exception to the notion that, um, that sooner isn't better. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, <clears throat> there certainly are no cures. Mm-hmm. And even the treatments are modest. <clears throat> but the data tells you for those who tolerate the one FDA approved drug uh, for AOS, those who tolerate Rezo well, the earlier you go, you come on to that drug, the the more you can bend the curve of deterioration and mm-hmm. that's important and and there are a series of behaviors that <laughs> that actually can accelerate the disease, lots of data to to demonstrate that trauma uh, can accelerate the disease or illness and so, you get into some very basic behavioral stuff, critical to take a flu shot, critical if you're of age to have an pneumonia shot, really important to protect your well-being as your, as your ability to respond to illness, particularly those of us with, with respiratory issues, keeping your lungs clear, keeping them working for as long as possible. These are critical differentiating points. I think, for making the most of the, disease, of the time you have. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually an advocate of the sooner you know, the yeah, more yeah. impactful you can be. For, for what it's worth, <clears throat> the best advice I've received, at least so far, and I'm, I'm coming up on two and a half years post-diagnosis, is to lean into the disease. Mm-hmm. It was an expression that Dr. John hansen in the University of Pennsylvania, who, who is my uh, pulmonary physician, uh, right from the beginning, he, and, and, I, and I've and come to terms with that, and I think it's exactly right. It's preparing, understanding, being ready. Look, these are all choices, those of us who have the disease make. How are you going to respond? It's perfectly reasonable to someone to go sit in a corner and cry and hide. And then to others of us, it's perfectly reasonable to understand that We all go eventually. Every single one of us will face this path. And so now it's your turn. And what do you want to do with the time? How do you want to use your resources? What do you want to do with your energy? And uh, I've been fortunate that I have fallen into that second category. I'm not sure where the strength comes from. Uh, Maybe it's partially I'm 63 years old. I've been in and out of AOS clinics now for a while, I see way too many 40 year old patients with young children and the challenges and issues that they face as the disease progresses and its physical manifestations become more apparent with every succeeding month to young children these are real challenges so yeah they, we all face different issues but at least at least for me, um, I've chosen to lean into it, be prepared, do everything I can to maintain, The quality of my life and my friendships and my family relationships and my relationship to work and and honestly just as important now my relationship to the ALS community because I have a responsibility there now.
3: And, and Jay Fisherman, maybe you could say a little bit more about this. I mean, obviously, everybody, uh, you know, people do what they can do when they get this disease. Uh, you're somebody who can direct a lot of resources uh, at this problem. And I know you've, you've, you've done that, that you've used the position that you have in the world and the community to uh, direct resources at, at research, at care, at treatment. I don't know if you want to mention one or two of the initiatives sure. that are really important to you.
5: I'd love to. The, there was a conversation earlier in your show about the hypothesis that these are actually individualized diseases, that, that it isn't one ALS, it's multiple versions. The, my, my wife and I, through our physician, in, in full transparency, Jeff Rothstein at Johns Hopkins became aware of uh, his effort to do genomic and proteomic sequencing of a 1,000 patients. That's a technology that one couldn't have envisioned 10 years ago, couldn't have... Uh, afforded five years ago, and now through technology, a whole different approach is possible. We, we were the keystone funders into that. That brought in a, a bunch of other people. We had the opportunity uh, to meet Lee Rizzuto at ALS Finding a Cure, a remarkable man whose daughter-in-law has the disease and, and is really leaning into it. In fairly short order, we were able to put together $20 million and launch this enormous basic data project. There are data processing firms, well-known ones, that will take this data. By the way, it's all open source. It's posted onto the the net. Any researcher in the world can get at it looking for patterns. Because once you find patterns, then hopefully you find treatments. One of the real frustrations with the disease is someone has a thought. It seems to be helpful to, let's say, 20%, indifferent to 50%, and actually hurt 30%. And so there's a whole question of how does one proceed when you get those kinds of divergent results. And so this project is off and running. And in fact, I think this week, we will take our hundredth sample from patients. And by the time we get to 1,000, we will have reached statistical significance to to hopefully point out genetic patterns that are not visible to us today. What I loved about this was that it was basic science. Let's, Let's take a step back. Let's worry a little less about finding the cure And let's make sure first we understand the disease because the technology has now enabled us to do that. That was terrific. As I began to engage in the community, I became aware of how woefully inadequate the care for current patients is and how difficult and frustrating it can be. And one of the biggest things is losing one's voice. I'm I'm fortunate that at two and a half years, I'm I'm not dealing with that yet. I will at some point, uh, but not yet. And... When you watch people lose their voice, their inability to communicate to their kids, their loved ones, it, it's heartbreaking. We became aware of a fellow up at Boston Children's Hospital, John Costello, who was probably the leading technologist in, I'll, I'll call it generically voice banking, in recording your voice before you lose it so that when you have to rely on technology to speak for you, it's your voice and not a, a, a GPS voice, not a... Not a car system voice. The, the the wonder of that is that it's a process that is actually very hopeful. Not to cure the disease, obviously, but in those early days when you have a sense that there's your senses, there's nothing you can do for yourself. That's just not true. Start recording your voice. It's not expensive. It's easy access technology, and I've seen family members do it in group, and and it's therapeutic and positive. And then once that inevitable loss of voice occurs, people will look back on the experience of that voice banking, and um, and it's good. It's really good. Keeps you connected. So we've we've been important. Uh, p- people see me on the street now. They walk across the street. I'm in shameless fundraising mode. My own resources and anybody else who can help.
3: All right, That's not time change. All right. Jay Fishman, I know that we promised you that you'd be able to go at 150. So, Jay Fishman, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kayone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ryan Lochte. On Friday, we'll be doing The Nose Live from the Ivoryton Playhouse, and you're all invited to join the audience. Details will appear on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On tomorrow's show, the loosey-goosey world of independent minor league baseball. And now, back to Colin.
3: Yeah, let me just take a moment to kind of um, double down, as we say, on that uh, Ivoryton invitation. So there's a beautiful, beautiful, old-fashioned playhouse uh, in Ivoryton, Connecticut, which is, uh, I think actually part of Essex, maybe. Uh, anyway, right right down there along the Connecticut River in Route 9. Uh, and it's one of these um, old theaters that everybody came through. Brando, Groucho, Marx, Marlena Dietrich. I don't know. I'm, I'm I might be wrong about some of those, but it's that kind of place anyway. Uh, And I've always loved it for various reasons. We're going to bring the nose down there on Friday. So the nose is at 1 p.m. I think if you wanted to be part of the live audience, you'd maybe want to get there around 1230 or something like that. Uh, But please do feel free to join us if you're uh, in that area and it makes sense to you. All right. We're going to to talk about some things in the aftermath uh, of the Olympics in Rio, Uh, a little bit about the sort of physical infrastructure and other stuff that got built there, and also the way that the media covered it. We've got two guests to do that. Uh, Katie Herzog uh, writes about uh, news for Grist, uh, the piece that she wrote we discovered also in Vox. Uh, and then Sarah Roberts uh, Robbins, a journalist with BBC uh, in Brazil, uh, she wrote a piece for the Columbia Journalism Review uh, about sort of who did and who didn't kind of hit the, the sweet spot of coverage uh, about the act, the realities, not of the Olympics themselves, but uh, of uh, the surrounding uh, issues in, in Rio. So uh, let's begin with you, uh, Katie Herzog. Um, one of the things that you wrote about was uh, ways in which some of the construction that got done in Rio, for all the people fussing that people did about it, some of it seems really kind of novel, sustainable, and far farsighted. Uh, maybe we could begin with the so-called future arena, this handball venue. Tell us about that.
6: Yeah, um, so Future Arena is the the handball arena at the the handball stadium at the uh, the Rio Olympics. Um, Apparently, they needed to have a separate arena just for handball. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been constructed using what's called nomadic architecture, um, which is it's, it's constructed so that it can be deconstructed and repurposed. So this one arena will be, in theory, repurposed and turned into four schools around Rio that should each serve about 400 students. So what was a handball arena will turn into
3: schools. Yeah, I think somebody, somebody compared it to almost kind of sort of a, a Lego architecture that could be pulled apart and, and pretty easily repurposed. And I mean, that's amazing and, and probably the kind of thing that you'd, you'd hope would be a model for future Olympic construction. Uh, otherwise, you wind up with a, with a lot of white elephants around that can't be used for, any, for anything, which is, as you point out, happened more often than not for Olympic host cities. Uh, there's also an aquatic stadium that they're, they're doing what? They're sort of giving that back to the community?
6: Yeah, they're going to turn the aquatics, they're the wherever they are, the the aqua- the big aquatic stadium into smaller community pools, so that will that will uh, have some reuse. You know, these are these are all sort of hypothetical. I think, um, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, oftentimes there are, there are big plans to repurpose or reuse stadiums that don't go through, um, you know, for various reasons. Um, so it has yet to be seen what will happen in Rio, but they did have some sort of ambitious plans. It's you know, these things look really good compared to other Olympics, but when you look at like Rio was billed as, you know, this was gonna be a model sustainable Olympics. But when you look at the steps that were taken to make it sustainable, they're all really pretty small and including this, you know, this arena, this feature arena and the the aquatic center is better than nothing. But the other steps were like they uh, you know, they constructed the bronze and silver medals with Um, with partially recycled metals. They're not giving out flowers for the award ceremonies anymore. So they're pretty, you know, token gestures towards
0: sustainability.
3: Well, you know, I want to um, add Sarah Robbins to this conversation. It does seem to me uh, that everything that we say about this has kind of an obverse version of it. So, for example, uh, in Katie's piece, uh, there's stuff about the 300-acre Barra Olympic Park uh, that's going to be, I guess, part public, park, part private development. Um, But for every sort of infrastructure thing that was on some city planner's wish list in Rio, there's a counter-narrative that you bring up in your piece, which is, You know, who who really did benefit from all the public expenditures? And, you know, could could it have been spent in a way that rehabilitated and helped neighborhoods that were less affluent and more in need of help?
4: Right. I think that's that's often the question is not necessarily whether the investments that were made uh, were ones that were wrong or that won't be used. Of course, the metro extension that was done will be heavily used and the regions that were invested in uh, people will benefit from those. But the questions are surrounding more, you know, what opportunities were lost in the city and which areas weren't developed or, you know, how could the momentum of the Olympics better help a, a greater swath of society. And just, you know, looking at the, the Olympics in terms of scale, when, when I talk about you know, a lack of nuance in some of the stories and, and what opportunities were lost in terms of coverage, I'm looking at 30,000 journalists in a city. That's 30,000 opportunities daily to tell stories for two weeks that might uh, connect people in Connecticut and elsewhere with the the people of Rio. So, you know, there's always the question of lost opportunities, not necessarily that, uh, you know, benefits didn't happen, but what opportunities there might have been.
3: You know, uh, Sarah, when I say that, it just seems as though every every story about this has a potential obverse to it. So, yeah, you, you cited some stories, that some coverage that, that talked about this, that wealthier neighborhoods seemed to benefit even when it didn't make geographic sense, even when it meant the, that the Olympics were more scattered and spread apart, uh, that some of these neighborhoods benefited in ways that poor neighborhoods didn't. Although it seems to me that if the development had been more heavily concentrated in poor neighborhoods, would we then be having an even bigger conversation? that it then has been had about displacement? I mean, one number I've seen is 80,000 people already displaced by all this construction.
4: Well, one of the areas that they had been looking at, at building in uh, was an area that has a currently has a university, and some of the, the early bids for the Olympics talked about investing in that area. So it's not clear, because those bids weren't developed further, you know, how much displacement there would have been, but there certainly would have been more investment in an area which would have been more reachable for people in uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods. So, you know, these kinds of questions are, are the ones that, uh, you know, some people uh, looked at in their in their coverage. And I think, you know, in, in terms of what could have been done a bit more and hopefully it might be done in future Olympic coverage, is uh, more investment in talking with local journalists and uh, local people ahead of time to understand what cost-benefit analyses were made and where, you know, where the – the um investments might have been made and to bring up that question uh ahead of the ahead of the games as well as during the
3: games. Um Katie, one thing that you've brought up too is the whole question of what happens to the coverage now. In other words there was at least some interest uh, during the games themselves, although there were a lot of what Sarah calls parachute journalists kind of jumping in and and making up their own narratives or jumping on the most convenient ones but I know one question you have is to what degree do all all of these urban issues churned up by the Olympic coverage of Rio and the Olympic activity in Rio get covered from now on
6: yeah, and we can look at other at past olympics and and sort of i i think um, anticipate what's going to happen, which is you know everybody leaves, and then nobody's still talking about Sochi at, at this point. You know even though that was largely a disaster for um, for the locals there in Russia. Um, it, London, I think, is also a good example. In London, the Olympic Park was built on in the East End, in uh, this historically low-income area that was also full of toxic waste. It was there was lots of industrial sites there, and the city detoxified this landscape to build the Olympic Park and then after the Olympics um, the there was supposed to be this emphasis on converting this to affordable housing um, and then a couple of years later Boris Johnson the, uh, the at the time the mayor of London and also the infamous um, brexiteer now um, uh, changed his mind and, you know and, and put put it re-emphasized development commercial development so even this even even an example that was supposed to, you know, create opportunities for people, to create affordable housing, it ends, in the end, it ends up going just for commercial development, and really ushered in a wave of gentrification that people are, you know, being displaced from their homes even now after the, you know, the four years after the Olympics in London.
3: A story that not a lot of people are telling. And and so, Sarah Robbins, that gets back to your piece, uh, which you sort of give some gold medals out to um, various press operations that did a good job, usually because they already had somebody there, uh, or because they partnered with people who were, with journalists who were already there. But it does seem one of the things you're describing in your piece is kind of a sweet spot that, that you're looking for, you know, in some ways to, to completely maximize all of the problems in, in in Rio and make it look like some kind of third world horror show um, is unfair on the other hand You know, most of most Americans got most of their information about the Olympics from NBC, which had a vested interest in sugarcoating everything there and making it seem like this wonderful party to which all Americans should feel invited every night on their television sets. So so, I mean, I I don't know. How do you find that right spot where you're really telling the stories of the people who live in Rio uh, and but without making it seem like this incredible global tragedy, which is probably not how people who live in Rio see their lives.
4: Well, I think actually, in fact, in the last couple of days, there have been a number of pieces uh, after the competition ended where outlets haven't succumbed to a pass-fail test. I think that there there were um, many who awarded praise uh, for some of the achievements during the games, talked about the huge sporting triumphs, uh, as well as the, the public spaces that have, uh, you know, quickly turned uh, into successes, such as Trasamawa, which is uh, a beautiful urban uh, area, public, open public space uh, down in the port region, uh, which, is, uh, which is a success. And I think that's uh, clear that there will be uh, plenty of people using that in the coming weeks. So I think the idea is to try to encourage Coverage that that allows for uh, the you know this kind of mixed result, which is that uh, there will be some benefits and that the people here you know, didn't forget their worries or forget the recession or think that they're you know that they they won't face tough times ahead, but in fact allowed themselves to enjoy the the times and also continue to question. And uh, in the coming weeks, in terms of the coverage that there will be, there's still a. a Mega event uh, called the Paralympics that's due to happen here, and uh, there will be plenty of questions continuing about uh, you know these um, the use of the stadiums as uh, Katie mentioned, and uh, you know some of these innovations. There are continued opportunities to look at these issues. So I think that the uh, the, the opportunity for Brazil and for Rio to uh, to be in the limelight and to keep asking these questions isn't, isn't over yet.
3: Yeah. Sarah, maybe if you could just say a little bit more about the Paralympics, because one narrative that I've been encountering is that as much as Brazil may or Rio may have struggled to finish some of the projects that needed to be finished in time for the Olympics, that the Paralympics is even more kind of at the back of a line for that, that there may be some problems that really needed to get resolved, but just just kind of didn't because of prioritization. Is there anything you can say about that? But it's
4: still evolving and the information exactly about how the transport for athletes and media uh, will happen, you know, still have question marks around them and certainly security in the city hasn't uh, quite been defined. You know, that was security was one of, I think, the, the things that went well. Security for tourists, in my view, was a big achievement. Of course, you know, we did... The uh, tremendous violence in uh, in some of the neighborhoods, uh, you know, where the number of deaths uh, increased not only during the months ahead of the games but during the games. Amnesty International said at least eight people died as a direct result of police operations during the games in poorer neighborhoods. But for tourists, the safety, uh, you know, went pretty. The safety issues went pretty well um, You know some uh, stories, uh, fabricated stories, notwithstanding. But um, the opportunity during the Paralympics, you know, for these things, you know, they do need to go well, and how it will work uh, still hasn't quite been defined in terms of uh, security and transport, in particular. So those are question marks. But uh, you know, there's a huge opportunity here for uh, Brazil uh, to learn during the Paralympics and to. Uh, you know to to get on board with with the Paralympics as a big event, and there are only twelve percent of the tickets sold, but you know the question is you know how that will go in the in the next couple of weeks.
3: Um, Katie, here's like we're running out of time here, but I mean, one thing that people will be watching going forward is the stuff that you covered in your story. That notion that temporary structures that can be repurposed or just our temporary structures make a lot more sense. We know that places like Montreal got stuck with a lot of stuff. That China wound up with a soccer stadium uh, that holds ninety-one thousand, uh, and they only were have, be able to uh, attract crowds of ten thousand for their regular post-Olympic soccer activities, and it cost you know a lot of money even just to keep. It going so. Uh, I take it there's going to be a big argument for future cities to think more in terms of temporary building.
6: Yeah, and I think that the the willingness of cities to host the Olympics itself, will, you know, is is um, is becoming a bigger conversation for you know the upcoming Winter Olympics. Um, a lot of cities pulled out. A lot of cities are realizing that they just don't want the headache, the cost, the have to have to create all this infrastructure that might you know just get wasted. Um, yeah, so I think people will talk be talking about that, and I'm I'm curious. I haven't seen a lot of talk about you know one way to deal with this problem besides making temporary buildings would be to have two Olympic sites in the world, one for the winter, one to one for the summer, you know, so that all of these cities aren't pouring billions of dollars into infrastructure that's not going to get
2: used. But
3: right. there
6: doesn't seem to be a lot of momentum around that idea. No, that
3: idea gets floated a lot, but I, nobody really yeah. seems to be biting on it. Well, listen, I want to thank both of you, and I want to encourage uh, people to read both of your articles. Katie Herzog's piece can be found in Grist and in Vox. Sarah Robbins has a really fascinating, detailed piece about what got done well. Uh, that's in the Columbia Journalism Review. We're going to go out with one of my favorite Brazilian mu- musicians, Javan. This is Pedro Brazil.
1: Here comes the flag bearer from Kazakhstan.
2: Oh, looks like he stepped in a hole.
1: Yeah, it looks like there's a hole in the floor in the Olympic Stadium.
2: Oof, that's bigger than a hole in Ryan Lochte's story, huh? Or
1: the financial hole Brazil's going to be in after these closing ceremonies. <laughs> <laughs>